Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whenever you're watching this, glad to be with you. My name's Aiden. If I haven't been able to meet you before, if you're kind of tuning in for the first time, uh, tuning in as if you got this on the radio somewhere. We are glad that you're with us. We've been in a series uh, for the last uh, couple, the last month or so, we're finishing it up next week, called The Truth About Lies. And what we've been saying, we've been going through, uh, saying that there are three enemies of our soul, right? There's three enemies of our soul. Right now, uh, I kind of read through the Psalms a little bit, and a, and a lot in there, uh, David, who writes a lot of the Psalms, has these uh, literal enemies at the time, thousands and thousands of years ago, that are against him, right? And so we, are, you know, the, the Psalms have been this book for people throughout the generations. Uh, Jesus would have read the Psalms. Church has read the Psalms for generations. And you read these things about enemies, and even myself, we've been teaching this series, soaked in this series. I read about enemies, and sometimes you're like, who, who, who is this for me? David was talking about Philistines and these other people who are my enemies. We've been saying this, that the enemies of our soul that we wage war against are the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what the New Testament would keep pointing us towards. That's what church history points us towards. And we've been saying it this way. And I think this is important for us to kind of get uh, stuck in our minds, is that the devil is the father of lies who primarily tells lies that sow to our sinful nature, our already broken sinful nature, and he sows a lies that, that, that sow to our nature that get normalized in the influence of the world, that get normalized in kind of the sinful society, not all the people, but kind of the spirit of the society. The way that this kind of plays out, we can think of with all kinds of sins, but I think about this as maybe a silly practical example. When I was a kid, I just saw my family uh, last night. I'm the youngest of a bunch of brothers. And when your oldest brother, a thing that you often do is you... You tell lies, tell stories, try to trick your younger brothers to get them to do silly things, believe silly things, be scared of silly things, right? It just kind of comes with the territory of being an older brother. I wouldn't know. But one thing that my brothers would do is they'd kind of make up these stories that kind of play to something inside of me. They We'll call them stories, but they would tell me these lies that would play to something inside of me, whether it was something I was excited about, something I was looking forward to, maybe it was a fear I had, right? And one thing, I'm going to share this before, my brothers always told me was that if you crossed your eyes, you know, you cross your eyes, you see double, it's all blurry. If you cross your eyes for longer than seven seconds, they will get stuck. And I'm not sure that to this day, I've kept my eyes crossed longer than seven seconds. I know it's not true, but I don't want to find out. It's seen double for the rest of my life, right? It played to this fear that was within me. And now what happens, and I don't know if this has happened a ton, but I feel like there's been times where my son, who's almost four, goes across his eyes. And I'm like, you know, why don't we, why don't we not do that right now, right? It gets kind of normalized into our family as this thing. Don't cross your eyes. I don't want you to see double for the rest of your life, right? That these lies play to our flesh, get normalized in the world. And we've been talking about that. And what we've been wanting to do for these last week, this week, and next week is go back to the beginning, go back to Genesis, see what God's original intention for us was, what the truth of life was meant to be, and about how Satan comes in and he subtly tells these lies. He subtly tells these lies that play to us that have got normalized throughout the scripture and throughout human history. So we are going to jump right back in. We looked at this last week. There's a couple different things we want to draw our attention to as we jump in. Genesis 2, pick up at verse 7 this week. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Lord God had planted a garden in the east, and Eden, and he put the man that he had formed there. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there's two trees. Make note of this. We're going to come back to this. The tree of life 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees in the garden. Jump down to verse 15. Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. This is what he told me. He says, God is partnering with this man, working the ground. He says, here's kind of stipulations. You're free to eat from any, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree in the garden. All these trees, good for food, tree of life, but don't eat. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look what he says. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, don't say God's going to kill him. But he says, if you eat from this tree, there's something that is going to happen that you have not experienced. Think about it. Man's like, I want was a death, right? You will certainly die. Then jump to Genesis 3. This is where we see uh, Satan and his lies starting to interact with mankind. Serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals God had made. Said the woman, did God really say? Kind of questions God's goodness and truth. Looked at this last week. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. She was repeating with a little bit of addition what God said to the man. And look at what Satan says. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We're going to pack this, keep bouncing back to this, but for the sake of today, you want to jump right in. What we want to look at is what Satan says, that he says, you will not certainly die. It may seem like a simple line, but as we look at what the ramifications of this, what this, how this lie plays to our soul and how Jesus comes to counteract this lie with the truth that has so much bearing for us theologically and how we understand God, but also practically for how we navigate and walk through our life, right? So I want to jump right in. The first thing uh, that this lie does, the first thing that this lie does is it undermines God's authority, It undermines God's authority. God says, eat from that tree. Something's going to happen to you. You are going to die. And Satan says, you're not going to die. Just straight up is like, what God said is wrong. I defy that. He's defying God's authority, right? Authority is an interesting word today. It's an interesting word, right? When I say authority, different things come to mind. For some, we, we want more authority, right? We're like, yes, we want more authority. However that plays out, right? And for others, we want less authority. A lot of what we see in the headlines with whether it's religion or politics or government or power, parenting, whatever it is, there's this conflict about authority a lot of times, right? When I was talking to Pastor Jonathan about this, he says, have you ever been in a room where nobody's in charge? No one has authority? No, it's chaos. Nothing gets done. Just like, who's in charge of this? But on the other hand, almost equally is as crazy as if you've been in a room and everybody wants to be in charge. Everybody wants authority. How much gets done? The same amount of nothing, right? Authority, if you think about this, authority is, it's based on, to some extent, I want to kind of paint this picture a little bit, is based on our experience. Maybe our training, maybe the position that we're in, maybe it's the perspective that we have. Maybe it's our identity of who we are, where we've been placed, right? We, now, I obviously know this can be negative, and a lot of, for some of us, why authority, we kind of buck at it, is because we've seen authority abused and misused and used for the wrong things, right? We've seen that, right? But you think about authority in a good sense, that authority, people in authority, positions of authority are there for our good. Scripture points us to that, right? Uh, years ago, there was a man who worked here at the church. He, was, he used to be a police officer. And it was right around the time when me and a lot of my kind of friends, community, were having kids. And if you've ever tried to put a car seat in a car, 
you, you, you feel like you need Jesus real quick, right? You're like, I'm not sure I've ever said these things before, trying to get this car seat in a car the right way. Well, this, this guy had been a cop and he had been certified on how to put car seats in car. He was certified, trained, he had this authority that this is the way you put a car seat in a car so that your kid is protected. He had this authority because of his training, because of his knowledge, because of his position, because of who he was, because of what he did. He this authority that he knew how to put the car seat in the car more than I did. I go to my dentist pretty often. My dentist is watching right now, watches online with us. I go to the dentist. Dentist has been dentist for a long time. He's got his own practice, been in a lot of mouths. So when he tells me, this is what's going on, this is what you need to do, this is how you need to brush, I trust him. Now I gotta put it into practice, but I trust him. Why? Because he's got authority over my teeth, right? One of the things that I love to do, uh, I get to do weddings, and I got to do a couple weddings uh, this year, and one of the things, I always like, I have horrible handwriting, horrible handwriting. But one of the things that I do is I get a I get a piece of paper. They bring it to their wedding, and I sign this piece of paper. This authority to solemnize marriage. I don't even know if I'm saying that word right. Solemnize, make it official. I have this authority to make marriages official because of the state of Ohio. And so I sign this piece of paper with my chicken scratch. And when I sign it, the authority placed in me by the state of Ohio now confirms that this couple is married, right? That their authority is in place for a reason. God is the creator. He made everything, created everything, fashioned, crafted, created everything, breathed his life into man. He made man to be like him, to kind of to kind of be an image of his authority, to help rule over the earth, right? He loves mankind. He directs mankind, partners with mankind. He gives this instruction to mankind for our benefit, for our flourishing of not just us, but the entire world. He says, go and rule this world for the good of the world. Help me in flourishing the world. But the lie was in direct opposition to what God had said because what God said, his word carries authority, carries weight. When he says something is good, it's good. When he says something needs to come into being, it comes into being. God's word is authority, right? And what Satan seeks to do in his direct opposition of God by saying, you're not going to die, is to undermine the authority of God. Because listen, if he can undermine God's authority, he, we talked about this last week, can erode trust. And ultimately, by eroding trust, by eroding trust in God's goodness and his truth and in his provision, he can get man to turn their backs on God. And that is the lie of Satan, is to erode trust, to play to our own desires that we wouldn't trust who God is. And by believing this lie, Adam and Eve, they exchanged trust in God's authority. They, they exchanged their trust and relationship in who God is for their own autonomy, their own authority. Where Satan says, you can be like God. Pastor Adam's going to lead us through this next week. I don't want to step on his toes. But when they ignore God's authority, when they adhere to Satan's lie that says, you are not going to die. They ignore God's authority and they ignore what God is protecting them from. God's authority represents his love and his goodness and his protection, his provision. He says these things for a reason. And when Adam and Eve listen to the lie, defy God's authority, it leads them to death. Now, I want to look at what this looks like in a practical sense, and I want to look at how this plays out for our hearts through salvation theologically and how it changes the way that we see Jesus and our lives. But the first way this lie plays out in a very, very practical sense is this, that the lie that Satan tells, you aren't going to die, it minimizes the reality of repercussions. 
Eve says, God says we're going to die if we eat from these trees. He goes, not true. Not true. You'll be fine, right? And at an ele- I want to start with this, almost a very practical, on-the-nose, elementary level. Satan, so what Satan's doing is that we have all experienced this, right? It's almost this like, you, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You're not going to die. Don't worry about the consequences. Don't worry about the repercussions. Just do what you want to do, right? It remind, reminds me of this. Remember this guy, Joe Camel, from like the 80s, 90s? Like, look how cool he is. His suit, his motorcycle looking like, I don't know, the dude from, what's his name? James Dean, whatever. Look at how cool Camel is. But what, what, you, what you can't see is in these little white boxes, you're like, you're going to be cool if you smoke Camel cigarettes. You're going to be cool like this. I don't, where's the Camel come from? Why? Like, just cooler animals than a Camel. That's neither here nor there. But look right here. You know what that says? That says you're going to die. <laughs> that says you smoke enough. Don't have babies if you're smoking. You're gonna, it's not going to go great for you. But it's small. It's hidden in the mystique of Joe Camel, right? Why? Because it's reducing the repercussions, the reality of what is going to happen. It may be super simple, but we all believe this, right? And at a spiritual level, that our flesh wants certain things. We talked about this, and this is what Satan is playing to. You're not going to die. Do what you want to do. He plays. This is a spiritual battle at war within us. The lies of Satan. You're not going to die. Play to what is inside of me. Spend this money on yourself. These things are going to make you feel better. This food is going to make you feel better. This Amazon package is going to make you feel better. This money that you don't have, it's going to make you feel better. It's going to give you what? The life that you want. This sexual pleasure, whether it's pornography, whether it's another relationship, whether it's extramarital relationship, whether it's our own view of sexuality, it's going to fulfill you. Because if we know anything in the West, it's that our identity is based on our sexuality in every form. And so just do what you want to do and it's going to make you who you want to be. It's going to make you feel the way you want to be. You know, if you have a relationship that's causing conflict, someone's bugging you, give them a piece of your mind, show them who's boss, put them in their place, right? That our sin nature, the lie that Satan plays to, wants, we've said this before, wants maximum benefit with minimum sacrifice, right? All these lies, it's not going to hurt you. Whatever, whatever it is, this thing that plays your flesh, it's not going to hurt you. But you've been on this planet long enough, even if you're four months old, how does this always play out? How does this always play out? Buy what you want, get what you want, satisfy your cravings. We end up in debt and we need more and more and more to satisfy our desire, right? We, we pursue our sexual desires, our sexual identity, how it plays out. And what happens every, every time is that we're broken, is that there's this, this sexual bond that can be betrayed, that we feel empty every time. What happens when we, when we give them peace in our mind, when we harbor a bitterness, when we don't forgive, what happens? That there's this, these shattered relationships, this bitterness that grows within us, this anger and hatred towards people. And we find ourselves broken and defeated, desiring more. We could be as cool as Joe Camel, but if we smoke for 70 years, what's going to happen? Right? They bury that. Satan buries that. You're not going to die. You're going to be fine. Do what feels right at a simple level. That's the lie that Satan plays, right? That in an elementary level, he minimizes those consequences. But think about this. The lies of Satan, they reduce the consequence of our sin. I want you to think about this. I want to try and be clear about this. Consequences can be both punishment and also the natural outcome of our sinful decisions, right? 
both, both the consequences of our sin, the consequences of, of disobeying, of separating ourselves from God, from doing what we want, that there's both punishment and there's natural, natural outcomes of what happens, right? When I was a kid, uh, I was the, the youngest of five, and uh, my mom's, my parents' kind of philosophy on parenting was, we are not going to make a bunch of arbitrary rules to prove to you that we are in control. We love you. The mom, they, my mom was the boss, right? Like, we didn't fool around. But she had rules that were, that were for a specific purpose, right? There are certain rules. Uh, you need to go to bed on time. And if you don't go to bed on time, you can deal with the consequences, right? You can only eat this much Halloween candy. And if you eat more, you're going to have to deal with the consequences when you feel sick, right? And one of the, the consequences, or one of the, the things that she always said was, was you're not going to go in the woods. We had these woods behind our house that I spent my whole life in. And, and one of the big rules was when it is a windy day, you don't go into the woods, right? Why? That there's both a, an instruction she gave. And if I disobeyed that instruction, right, there was a punishment. There was a punishment because she's like, I told you not to do this. But there's also... If the situation was wrong, there would be natural consequences to me going in the woods when it was windy, right? There's punishment, there's natural consequences. That there is a punishment for defying authority, right? You, you go too fast, you get pulled over, right? That there is a punishment for defying authority. Authority that is there for a good reason. To what? Protect us from the natural consequences. And in this situation, to protect us from the natural consequences of my own autonomy. In what happens in the garden, when we believe the lie, when we believe that we will not die, those natural consequences show up in our, in our defying of God's instruction, right? That we separate ourselves from the presence of God's goodness. We step out of the sunlight. We step out of wholeness. We step away from his provision, direction, goodness, and authority. And what happens is we live with the consequences of that. We see this played out through the scriptures and through all of history. How has that been going for us? What have the natural consequences of believing that lie, Right? That we, we see the natural consequences in this chapter. Later on in chapter 3, he says to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam, he says this is what's going to happen. That these are both punishments from defying God's authority, but also natural consequences. That the serpent will crawl on his belly, right? Will kind of be back in the dust. And what he says is that he will be in conflict with the seed of the woman. That there will be this conflict and ultimately... What he says in Genesis 3, there's this first declaring of the gospel that his head will be crushed. That's what we see at the cross, right? That the consequences of Satan doing this is his ultimate defeat, right? That for, for women, that there's this pain in childbearing, and there's this, there's this conflict with this relationship to the husband, right? That as a natural result of this sin, of, of clinging power for themselves, that there's this pain that enters, right? That the, the reproduction of life, the continuum of life is now going to have this pain associated with it. That there's this, this conflict that men and women, the husband and wife are now at tension with each other is the natural result of us wanting autonomy and control for ourselves. And to the man that this, this work, this what you were called to do before sin entered the picture, this partnering with God for the flourishing of the world now is going to be laborious, right? It's now going to be this toil. And what God says is you eventually return to the ground that you came from. Physical death is now part of the equation. There's this nat there's this punishment, but these natural consequences for the seizing of authority for ourselves. Genesis 3, the end of Genesis 3 says this. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden a cherubim. It's kind of this angel figure with the flaming sword flashing back and forth 
to guard the way to what? The tree of life. Remember those two trees? The tree of life that they were free to eat from. This tree of life that represents this relationship with God, this life that's found in God, this intimacy with God. That now this, 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 this angel figure guards this garden. That the banishing from the garden, from this presence, was both a punishment but a natural consequence. That, that this sword, this sword is of God's justice. It's the wages of sin, right? That Tim Keller says that whoever re-enters the paradise must go under the sword, right? But this sword is also a picture of God's mercy to protect them, that now they are in the state of their own, their eyes have been opened, the state of death, and to come and eat from this tree will leave them in this state forever. So God's, God's justice, his protection is also his mercy, that he protects them from being in this state forever. And while they couldn't re-enter what happened because of the consequence, because of the punishment, they, to partake in the tree of life now, the story of the scripture, listen, the story of the gospel is that the tree of life would eventually make its way to them. That the lie of Satan led them to death. And death, what we see here, is so important. It interrupts intimacy. That death interrupts intimacy, right? You know this to be true in your own life. You've experienced the loss of somebody. What is broken, this intimacy, this relationship with that person? I want you to think about that other tree in the garden for a second. The tree that we were free to eat from was that tree of life. Genesis 2, that man created God to be in this intimate, or look out, that God created man to be in this intimate relationship with him, that, that God himself was their source of life, right? And the tree of life was this picture of that, that there's this tree of life and this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of relationship, reliance, and trust on God for his life and this tree of doing that on their own, right? That God, that God created man to be in relationship with him. He was their source of life. Genesis 3, he breathed life into the lungs of the man. That our breath was the breath of God. That, that, he walked, that we walked in the light of God's presence and of his glory. Acts 17 says, for it's in him that we live and we move and we have our being. It's in this intimate relationship with God, our creator. That Genesis tells us that he walked with man in the cool of the day, which was this kind of Hebrew idiom, this Hebrew saying for relationship, intimacy reliance and friendship this was the relationship that we had to God this is what life was as we had relationship with God as we ate from the tree of life this is what life was look at John 1 4 John 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 1 1 through 4 gives this this kind of picture kind of John's poetic poetic picture of the creation account in the beginning was the word that's Christ and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God, if you have any doubt about it. He was with God in the beginning. And look at this, through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, apart from Christ, nothing was made that has been made. And look at this, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. It's the presence of God, the goodness of of the creator, of Christ's role, that was the light. It's how we, how we live. It's where our intimacy with God was the source of our life. I've talked a lot of times to you guys about my scooter, about my scooter. I mean, luckily, when I was gone a couple weeks ago, I put that thing away. I thought it was done for the winter. Came back, 70 degrees. I've been driving the scooter, right? Love the scooter. Been having some trouble with the scooter this year. 
it, you know, kind of a lot of times I'll get stranded places because it's not starting up, and I've been having some problems. And uh, there's a, a guy named here, Todd Jones. If you come here on a Sunday mornings, parking parking lot, he's a true uh, he's a true Harley guy, true motorcycle guy. Kind of takes me under his wing. He allows me to talk bikes with him, right? I always asking Todd, Todd, what's going on with my bike? Having problems with my bike? And what I figured out was that my the little things that hook onto the battery, those are called uh, battery hooky doodles. Uh, one of the battery hooky doodles came, would come off. I would secure it on, but it's kind of broken and it would come off. It would disconnect from the battery, right? And while it would start for a second, it would disconnect, it would die and it would not start up again, both, both kill, killing the scooter. And what happened is I kept getting stranded places, I get frustrated, but what was happening was that I was disconnecting from the source of power, the source of energy, the source of my scooter. And that's what happens. That, that when, when sin entered the picture, when we chose autonomy for ourselves versus living under the goodness, trust, and reliance in the life of God, that we disconnected from our source of life. And the lie was that you are not going to die. You will be just fine disconnected from the source of life. Unhook the battery and you can still drive. That was the lie. Uh, T. Desmond Alexander says this, while they do not cease to die, to exist physically right away, they are expelled from the garden, from the sanctuary in presence of God. Cut off from the source of life, in the tree of life, they are now in the realm of the dead. What they experience outside of Eden is not life as God intended, but spiritual death. Sometimes we talk about these things and it feels kind of spiritual death. Like, what are we talking about? That was separated from the battery, separated from God. We, we are in the realm of death. This is not the life that God intended for us, right? And what we overlook often, and this is so crucial, that when we ate from that tree, we didn't die immediately. But physical death did come to all people because we have been disconnected from the life source himself. The ultimate lie that Satan peddles here is that you're not going to die. You will be just fine. He's saying you can have life apart from God's presence. You can be just fine. You can experience life and life to the full apart from who God is. You don't need him. That he isn't who he says he is and that life is found apart from him on your own. Eat from this tree, you will be like him and you will find out what life is really like. And Satan continues to play these lies to us to redefine what life in life abundant is. More stuff, more power, more sexual experience, more temporary pleasure, more focus on me, more gratification, whatever it is. The list goes on. The lie continues from Genesis to now. And this is not the life that God intended, but this is death. Because this is life where on our own terms, which is built on a lie that you can be like God, that you will not die apart from God. Look at Romans 5. Look at Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, through the sin, through this turning our backs on God, death is now in the picture. Death came to all people. Why? Because all sinned. Because Adam, Adam as our father, was the head of mankind. That we inherit, just like you inherit traits from your, from your grandparents, just like you inherit disorders from your grandparents, just as so you inherit health from your parents, just as so you inherit personality traits from your parents. We inherited sin from Adam. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged in anyone's account where there is no law. He's kind of talking about the law that would come through the Old Testament. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, that was before the law, even to those who do not sin by breaking command as Adam did, who's part of the pattern of the one to come. This pattern of the one to come. Look what he goes on to say, verse 15. But the gift 
is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, that sin came through all because of Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Christ, overflow to the many? For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ? Through the one man, Jesus. Jesus has come to give life. He's come to give life. We think this is metaphorical, that this is kind of, yeah, it's kind of like a, like kind of an illustration. It's simply something that happens later when we die. He'll give us life later on if we just kind of mentally agree with him. But Jesus comes to give us life and life abundant, the fullness of life, then and there, and he makes all things new, absolutely, but here and now. Through the Gospel of John, look at what Jesus says. You know these passages, but they flow past our minds. But look at, as we eat from the tree of life, look, for God's love of the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, kind of trusts to, clings to, adheres to, relies on Jesus, shall not die, but what? Have eternal life, have life and life abundant. The thief, that's Satan, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what we see him doing. That's what we see him doing in the garden, killing, stealing, destroying. But Jesus has come to have life and to give life to the full. Jesus said to his friend, I am the resurrection in life. I am the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die physically. Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus has come to reconnect the battery, to be with us, to be in relationship with us, to conform us to his image, that we might have intimacy with the creator himself. This is what Jesus has come to do, to be. Then in the, in the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus, he defines what this life is, reminds us what this life is, this eternal life, this abundant life, this life everlasting. It goes back to the garden, what the relationship with man and God was. Now, this is eternal life. This is life abundant. This is life unto the age that they may know you, the one true God, know you, have intimacy with you in Jesus Christ, who you've sent. That eternal life, that life abundant is knowing God, being known by God, living in relationship with him, living in light of his presence, following his way of life here and now until he brings us into the new age where he makes all things new. That is what life is, a return to intimacy. Jesus restores what was lost in the garden, that we ignored the tree of life and we ate from our own tree of the knowledge of good and evil, our own autonomy, doing things our way. But Jesus has come to re-enter the garden, to go under the sword, to come back into paradise, to bear the consequences, the pain of sin, that we might be reconnected to the source of our life. Look at what, what Jesus does. That there's consequence to our sin that was, that was reduced, that Satan reduced the consequences of our sin. But Jesus came to pay those consequences, to take those consequences on himself. By taking on that separation, by taking on the penalty of death, he nailed himself to what? To a tree. By both Rome, by the Jews, by you and me, that we nailed God himself in our own knowledge and wisdom. We nailed him to a tree. Hebrews 2 says this, since children, that's you and I have flesh and blood. He too, Jesus came, he shared in our humanity. He stepped into the picture to do what we failed to do. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, the devil. 
and free those who have, who their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death, that we were in the realm of the dead and Jesus came as one of us. Adam was a man, Jesus came as a man. And just as Adam represented mankind, Jesus has come to represent the new creation, the new life, to do what we failed to do, to bear the consequence of sin, and to lead us to the tree of life. In Matthew 4, we see his interaction with Satan and, and, and Jesus. Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan tempts him. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam, Jesus overcomes this, this temptation. He is the new Adam who withstands the temptation that we failed at. By his resurrection, Jesus conquers death itself. This death that has reigned, that Jesus has conquered it, made a new way to enter paradise, enter the garden and have life and life eternal. You know what happens when you defeat something? When you overcome Satan, when you overcome death, you know what happens? You have authority. And in Colossians 2, Jesus leads the principalities of darkness through the streets, parading them, saying, I have conquered them. And he humiliates them by being the one who has authority. That all things we place under the feet of Jesus and he will rule and reign forever. Jesus, as he's raised to life, he he pays for the consequence, the punishment of our sin that we take on his righteousness and he takes on our sin. 2 Corinthians He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, that the consequence has been paid for, but he leads us to come to himself, that Jesus is himself the tree of life. Jesus is the tree of life here and now. Look at what Jesus says. You know this. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, connected to me, the battery connected to the life source, which is in me, you will bear much fruit, just as Adam was called to, to, to bear fruit in life, to, to, create, to work in the garden, to create flourishing for the world, that if we attach ourselves to Jesus, we will bear much fruit in this world. But apart from me, you can't do anything. That the lie was that you won't die, that apart from God, you can do whatever you want apart from God. Jesus comes to deal with the consequences, to be the tree of life, that we tie ourselves to the vine, to the tree, where we flourish, where we bear fruit in partnership with Jesus. It's here and now. It's a way of life here and now. It's abiding in him here and now. Through a walk in relationship with him, that just as Adam and Eve walked in the garden, Jesus calls us to what? To walk with him. And our hope for eternity, Jesus making all things new, when he expels sin entirely from this earth and creates new heavens and new earth, that for eternity, the tree of life is going to give hope and healing to make all things new. Look at this, Revelation 22, last chapter of the scriptures. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and through the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood what? The tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding fruit every month, And the leaves of this tree are healing for the nations. That Jesus is the tree of life, calls us to abide in him, and is himself the source of life for all. Which tree will you eat from? Which tree? This is is the decision that we all have. Which tree will you eat from? The tree of life, life with Jesus, 
trusting reliance in his goodness and in his faithfulness and in his presence and in his way of life and truth or our own way of doing this our own sense of goodness our own sense of truth our own sense of what the good life is which tree will you pick have you believed a lie that says apart from jesus you can have life that apart from god you can have life and life abundant and it's going to look however you want it to look that if I just get this next job, this next relationship, this next season of life, this next experience, this, this next stage of self-discovery, that then I'm going to have life. Have you believed that lie? That life is available apart from Christ. Jesus invites us to come and partake from the life that he offers. He says, come and eat from this tree. Come abide with me. Come and follow me as we work the ground for the flourishing, for the good of the world. This is what discipleship is. This is what following Jesus is. It's following Jesus in his way of life in life abundant. That as we adopt the attitudes of Christ, as we adopt the mind of Christ, as we adopt the ethic of Jesus, the view of people that Jesus has, the disciplines of Christ, the definitions of what is good, as we adopt these things, as we trust and eat from the tree of life, that's what it means to say yes to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I don't want to trust my own autonomy, my own way. I want to trust your way. I want to trust your life. I want to trust your authority that leads to life and life abundant. We pray with me. Jesus, forgive us for believing that we can find life apart from you. And Jesus, forgive us for trying to dip our toe in the water of, of your river and of your goodness and saying, I'm not sure if that's going to give me the life that I want. And Jesus, I pray that you would help us to, to trust and eat from the tree of life that is found in you, to abide in you so that you might bear fruit through us that we might be your disciples, that we might be conformed to your image, that we might look like you and talk like you and think like you, Jesus. I pray that day over day that we would say yes to you, that we would step towards that tree and that we might experience life and life abundant and that you might bear that fruit through us that, that, that gives life to those around us. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.